Welcome to the Women's Running Coaches Collective, Conversations on Coaching. If you want to learn more about us, go to womensrunningcoaches.org. Please join us to help change the landscape of women coaches in running and track and field. You can make a difference. Today's conversation is with Jacqueline Hansen, pioneer marathoner, world record holder, and running activist. This is Season 1, Episode 7, Part 2, interview by Charlotte Lettuce Richardson. Well, going back a little bit in time here, I'd love to ask you a bit about some history. Um, And I know your next book is going to be uh, talking about the history of women's running. Is that true? Is that the name of it, by the way? Do you have a name yet for it? We, we, we were keeping a name under wraps, but the working title is, of course, you know, the history of women's distance running in the U.S. And so we have to, you know, like we can't do the whole world country by country. Oh we, we, would leave, we, we would leave something out. So we, we kind of put the U.S. and we put it that way so that we can include any international runner like Greta who comes to the U.S. Right. right. But we're really focusing on the 800 on up. Right. and uh, how we got there from the beginning of time, from the day that Pierre de Coubertin began the first modern Olympics, right. saying that it should have be staged with art at its setting, it should be an exaltation of men's athleticism, with women's applause as its reward. <laughs> Us admiring them. <laughs> yes, exactly. So we, we, we'll, we'll begin at that point, and we'll go all the way to today. This is going to take three expert co-authors who um, specialize in, in women's sports history because this is a, this is a chunk. Yeah, this is more than I can, I, I bit off something more than I can chew. So I do have some help. Well, it's funny because it's a very similar process to filmmaking, documentary filmmaking where, you know, at a certain point, you know, you can't cover everything. You have to really refine it and refine it to make it, um, in a sense, to make it of any value to other people, you know, you can't just talk about right. you know, everything in the world. So um, I'm looking forward to it. So I'll ask you this question, and, and I'm not sure it's totally, um, you know, your area of expertise, but we do know that in 1928, uh, women had an exhibition uh, slate oh, yeah. of events. So it was 100, 800, high jump, shot put, and hurdles. I yeah, think that's I think was. that's about it. And um, you know, it was in, in in many people's eyes, it was a complete disaster because we didn't see women in track and field in the Olympics until much later. Right. Uh, and the 800 didn't come back in the Olympics until uh, uh, 1960 in Rome. Right. right. Um, I mean, how do you do? You have a sense of how this backfired, and then. Um, do you, do you feel like this had some repercussions, repercussions into uh, getting more uh, events in the Olympics, distance events in the Olympics? Oh, ab- absolutely, absolutely. Before 1928, you know, we had the French woman, Alice Milliot, with her um, organization of FSFI. It was French for, you know, a Federation of Feminine Sports International. uh, internationally. And... Um, she had all the events, as far as I know. She offered up, you know, a full slate of events for women, and she called it the Women's Olympic Games. And she totally got co-opted by the the men's Olympic Committee, telling her that you may, you know, cease and desist. Basically, you may not use the word Olympic Games. They are not official. They are not the Olympic Games. And eventually, because um, she wouldn't back down, but eventually they co-opted her with the promise that if she stopped that and she became would become part of the organization, but they would govern women's sports, but they would give us events. Hmm. So the downside was, of course, that they only gave us five events. So she's scaling back. And she did keep putting on what she called the World Games for a while. Yeah. But in the official IOC Olympic Games, we had the five events. And that 800 meters um, did backfire on us. Right. However, we have our first case, our first recorded case of fake news. 
oh. back in 1928 Ooh. because because the picture that came out and the story that came out after the 800 has been found to be a hoax. It was incorrect. So they claimed that most of the majority of the women that finished the 800 collapsed on the track and were clearly not capable of running this long distance. And it was harmful to us. And the USOC was one of the first ones to jump on board, on board and cancel the event in at least you know our championships and not sanction the event in our country and it was dropped from the olympic games as you famous said famously until 1960 rome so it totally backfired on us however that picture was not of the 800 meter finish oh it was probably the hundred right and even if it were even if it were and i think uh was it harold abrams of the um you know, the Chariots of Fire movie fame, <laughs> actually tried to come to our defense that, uh, that even if it were true, it was, if anybody did collapse, it was only from the sheer exhaustion of putting out a full-on effort that even a man, man would do. Right. Even right. men collapse on the finish line if they've put out a full effort. Right. So, uh, but it wasn't true. No, wanted us because we we were even more limited than the news between the West Coast and the East Coast that you and I experienced. We were even more limited in those days. They uh, went across on a boat. Uh huh. Uh -huh. So news traveled even less, you know, by <laughs> Pony Express across the country. So, um, but it it was found to be a hoax, and it was just a power grab, and it was just keeping women in their place. Right. Well, and it, and, and it brings to mind uh, truly the AIAW and the NCAA and Very similar. During that time, that sense of co-opting, you know, a particular organization. And once they have control of that, then they have control of what events yeah, are going exactly. to be. Exactly. Yes. So yeah. it's a, so, and, and, you know, it's so funny because after 28 and right up through into the 50s, 60s, you know, there was such a sense that women shouldn't compete. Um, and even in, you know, you look at the old um, uh, physical education teachers, the women, and the whole idea of, like you said, we play half court basketball and we have cookies and tea afterwards because we aren't competing. You know, we're all getting along just beautifully. Yeah. Um, and you know, it, so even when you and I started, there was still this sense that women shouldn't be doing this. Exactly. And, you know, and so even when you started, you know, in 74 to try to get the marathon in the Olympics, that kind of resistance was still there, wasn't oh, yeah. it? Yeah, definitely. I say at best, it was apathy. Right. It, things could stay the way they had always been. And at worst, it was discrimination, which we proved. Right, you did. You yeah. did. And I don't want to talk about right there now because I want you to talk about that in just Later. a bit. So in 1975, Jacqueline, you and I had the wonderful experience and honor of running against each other, or I will say with each other in yeah. the mini marathon, 10,000 meters. And uh, Fred Lebeau, who is, uh, uh, has passed away, when he talked to me about it, he said, this is the East Coast meets the West Coast. You know, it was this big buildup. And, um, and I remember being terrified, actually, because I'd already heard about you. And I knew, you know, how strong you were and all of that. Um, and we ran together in that race. And I think both of us, it was an all women's race. Right. And I think both of us, it was the biggest one as of yet, I think it was the third year. The starting gun goes off at the mini marathon in 1975 in Grand Central Park, and we were gonna run 10K. And I remember after the first half mile, mile or so, you and I just sort of separated from the pack and just started running together. Right. And I just remember thinking to myself, this is what it's like to be in a race and to be in the front and to be competing against yeah. a, another woman. And, um, and I even remember a bit of conversation here and there. I remember at one point, some young men laughing at how skinny we were. You know, I don't want <laughs> to remember that. No, I don't. That's good. And, uh, you know, a couple of other things happening. And it was as if the race just happened quickly. I mean, it seemed like we were at six miles all of a sudden, and both of us uh, didn't know what to do. 
I mean, I truly think that you made a move first, right? Anyways, I'll let you go ahead. And kind of the question is, why were these early races of women only so important? Oh, wow. Um, yes, they were very important. But our, our personal experience was like, I, like I've often thought, one of two peak performances I ever had. And, so and, and peak performance wasn't a term then. It wasn't sports psychology wasn't a term then. But it's something I've been fascinated with ever since because I did know about, I did think of my running as meditation. And I did, I did instinctively try to go in my warm up for a race to calm my nerves down, slow down my blood pressure, slow down my heartbeat, um, try to relax. You know, I, that was instinctive right. as opposed to the other half of the track team that's like trying to, you know, the sprinters and the throwers trying to pump themselves up. So I already had this notion that distance running could be meditative. And so we, I feel like we were in the flow. We were definitely in the flow and a peak performance is euphoric and effortless. Yes. And it was definitely that. I never felt like you and I were fighting each other. Like it wasn't like out for blood. We weren't trying to beat each other. I felt more like I was drawing strength from running together. And we did, we, we just evolved out of the group. Yep. You know, we evolved out of the, the, the massive start um, and narrowed it down to maybe a, a couple of dozen, down to a lead pack, down to just you and I. Right. And off, and, and I never felt like I was competing. However, all that training <laughs> at, we get to the six mile mark and I'm beginning to think, what a lovely experience. Wouldn't it be perfect if we just cross the finish line tied? And then I just like, you know, like, oh, Laszlo on my shoulder. It's the six mile mark. You better kick. And if he were there, that's what he would say. And so I like snapped out of it, woke up and made a move. Well, I didn't know that you were a much better 400 meter runner than I was. I had never gone under 60 seconds in my life. In fact, 63 was probably my max 400 speed. And that was probably on a relay that was, you know, not the full distance. And you went by, you, you changed gears and went by me like I was standing still. But you know, it didn't detract from any of that experience. It was still a peak performance. So my message when I tell that story is that you can have a peak performance and not be winning. It's still possible. And then as you informed me that Fred was building it up as East meets West, Tom Dederian told me just sometime this year that he also said, it was the first time that the media came out for the competitive event it was instead of the novelty it used to be. And that it was the day that women's racing changed. And I really appreciate it. I said, well, thank goodness we didn't tie. That would have ruined, ruined everything. I know. I know. I'm glad. I always felt guilty for never, I always felt like I'd let Fred down that I never won anything in New York. Oh. I never won anything. I have two seconds and a third, and then a couple of in the 20s, 23rd, twice. And I thought, and then I dropped out of the New York Marathon. But I always felt like I let Fred down. And I did not. I know. You and I gave him the race he was hoping for. Right. Exactly. exactly. I so much better now. What's, oh, your throat is great. <laughs> you know, and I feel much better now. I agree, Jackie. I, I, I feel like, um, so you don't know my history with that. Two years prior in the first one, I think, I think it was the first one, there was a woman named Jackie Dix. Right. I, I didn't run that one. You know why? Can I, and then I want you to tell your story, but I'll just say I didn't run that one because I came in the month before or after, uh, the month after and ran the national championships. And Fred said, you missed the big one. Oh. He goes, they won't come out for a championships, right. but they, the, the women of New York, he said, the, the average woman would not come out for a championships. That's for elite. Right. They came out for the mini marathon. That was fun. Right. 
right? No, so I mean- You ran in the big one. Tell me how, ran, how, about running with Jackie yeah, Nixon. And the, the, the biggest problem was, again, it was my first or second year running. Um, we went into the race and I, there had to be 150. I don't think there were very many women in that first race. And um, for some reason, her boyfriend or coach, I don't know which it was, decided to ride his bicycle alongside of her the whole way. And she wasn't that far ahead of me. I, I, I actually can't tell you my time. Kept looking around at me, looking back, telling her, looking around. And I remember feeling it wasn't that I could have beaten her that day, not necessarily, but I felt really disrespected. It was. And, and it was very disrespectful. And I remember uh, Tom Dedarian also kind of afterwards saying, you know, why would anybody do that? You know, women are totally capable mm -hmm. of racing themselves. Mm -hmm. And I didn't go back the next year because of that. And I think oh. I, I just felt very disrespected. And, um, you know, if you're going to win, win on your own. You know, or when and that and that act became illegal very soon. Yes, very, very, very soon. And but that was also sort of the attitude that I think men had about women runners. They can't do it on their own. They can't do it on their own. Yeah. They don't know what in the hell they're doing. You know. Yeah, exactly. So, so I think the the really precious part about racing against you was we were on our own. We were racing on our own terms, and. You know, that's what it had to be. And, and now, and I feel so much better after you telling me that about Fred LeBeau also, because it did open up, you know. This yeah. we, we, changed, we, changed, we changed his race. Yes. We, we, yes. Changed, we were there the day his race changed. was established as a serious competitive event. And it, was, and it was East versus West. I mean, everybody showed up. Right. Right. Well, and you know, I, I think I ran it one or two years later, didn't run really well. I think I was just ahead of Doris and we were in the top 10 or something yeah. like that. Yeah. But that experience, again, sticks out so strongly. The fact that I can remember what people said to us on the sidelines. Yes, that's crazy. But you know what you said about, you asked about um, why, why was it important to do that? And, and it, it seriously was what you just said about, we did it on our own without pacers by ourselves. Okay, so now the point was we needed a lot of women only races in the 70s to eventually gain our races on the Olympic program, but we needed them to, to showcase the women, to be the first ones across the finish line, to break that finish tape, to be the first ones at the aid stations before the water was all gone. <laughs> Um, to clearly to have an unhindered, unobstructed path in front of us, right? And with that came a lot of responsibility. You bet. We had to lead. We had to learn to front run. We had to learn to pace. Right. We had to learn to react just like I did on the track. You know, I mean, I, I guess I grew up with that because I was right. a track runner. So if the person in the mile or the person in cross country reacted and it wasn't my race plan but right. she, she she surged i'd had to learn to react to that and go with them i couldn't always have my race plan go perfectly the way i prescribed in my head but if somebody surged or somebody you know did made a move that i had to react to i so be it you know you had to be as coaches we tell our kids you know have a race plan but also be ready to react Cover every move, I say. Cover every move, yeah. Just have plan A, B, and C. Yeah. And uh, you don't, you know, we teach them like in cross country to try to keep an arm length away, no more than that. Don't break the, the tie, you know, that kind of thing. Don't, um, don't fall behind, always stay within reach. So we teach them all those tactics. But we as women in the 70s, we'd always been, even, even if we could run in a road race and there was our division, we were surrounded by men. Yes. And, and, so we, it was their race and we were a division. Right. So now we had the responsibility to learn how to front run, learn how to lead, learn how to pace. And with it came all the benefits of being the first to break the line, being the first at aid stations, having an unobstructed course. So there were benefits and there were responsibilities. Right, right. Yeah, and I, I think the, the idea that even though we were fighting against the idea that women shouldn't be competitive, women shouldn't do sports, um, we, were, we were brought up that way. You know, yeah. I, I can remember um, even early on when I first started racing, um, 
saying things like, well, I'm competitive, but, you know, as if it was a dirty word. Right. And um, today it's not. I mean, the kids that I coach, the young women that I coach, they're out there. They're out to compete. You know, there are sometimes some friendships that they don't want to race against their girlfriend or their whatever. Right. But, you know, we had to learn that. Um, or no, maybe not learn it. Well, yeah, learn it, but also accept it. Accept yeah. that we were competitive beings. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you were, you were remarkable. So, okay. So here comes a bit of a hard question. And, you know, as, as, as simply as you can, because a lot of us <laughs> didn't live through it. Um, can you talk about how the marathon and the 3K were added uh, in 1984? And I'd love to hear why the 3K got added. That's an interesting one. Okay. And then the 5K in 1988, and then the 10K, not until 1996. Or the reverse, 10K 88, 5K 96. Oh, you're right. You're right. See? Yep. I, and I had put it. Yep. It's okay. not logical, but I'll but tell it you It is logical. And that's why. <laughs> I that way. So the 5K in 1996. Um, yeah. I know it was a long and very complicated story, uh, but can you talk a little bit about Nike's involvement, the International Running Committee? the politics with the IOC, and then the Los Angeles Olympic Operating, Operating Committee? Um, L-A-O. Organizing Committee. Organizing Committee. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I know it's not a simple story, but you could you give us some broad overstrokes uh, over of that um, to give our uh, listeners kind of a sense of the drama and the urgency um, and why you felt it was so important to fight? Okay, well, you're right. That is, a, that is another whole podcast all by itself. Yes. But um, I, 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 I will, I will try, or they can just read my book. Yes, uh, read I, can, book. <laughs> I can tell you that um, I can knock out the 3K in a, in a heartbeat because that would have just been the next logical step after the 1500 was added in 72. The 3,000 would be the next logical distance to add. So it was probably already somewhere, you know, in their committee reports and, and uh, proposed, their proposals. The problem being, even the men don't run what we call a flat three. They run a 3,000 meter steeplechase. And frankly, I wasn't fighting for that because women were not running steeplechase at the time. So even, even we would admit as runners, you know, as marathoners that, yeah, okay, that is not something we're competing in at the moment. So it, it wasn't, uh, I'm not saying it wasn't a priority, but yeah, frankly, it wasn't a priority. But we didn't need the 3000. We always said we didn't need a flat 3000. Even the men don't have a flat 3000. We want a five. Right. And we right. want the 10. So the International Runners Committee came about um, in 1979. Remember, as I said, I started my campaigning such as it were naive um, that I was in 1974. Nina Kusick is doing the same in her role in women's track and field uh, in our national federation um, back in New York. And she's doing it through trying to change the rules and law and legislation. And I said, hey, Nina, you know, maybe we can do a letter writing campaign or, you know, we can sign a petition and maybe we can change their minds like I was going to get to go to Montreal in 76. Well, that wasn't going to happen. So then in 1979, Joe Henderson of Eugene and of Runner's World, you know, editor, ed, editor fame, and my husband, Tom Sturek, who was working for Nike at the time, and Pam McGee, who was uh, women's track and field promotion uh, for Nike at the time, got to talking about it and formed a, you know, a, had, had committee meetings and Nike basically said, what does it take? What would it take to get the women's distance events move forward? And so we formed the International Running Com Runners Committee and there were uh, 13 of us movers and shakers uh, in the running world like Doris Brown Heritage, who you've mentioned, like Jeff Darman, uh, president of the RRCA and Henley, uh, Henley Gabo, uh, eventually president, not at that time, of the RRCA, and uh, Joan Oliott, a medical expert, running doctor, you know, world-class marathoner. Um, I know I'm going to forget people. Ken, Ken Young, like a, uh, was a, our statistician. Right. 
And you mentioned somebody. Nina, was it Nina Cusick on the committee? Oh, definitely. Well, I was thinking of Nina and I and Doris and Eleonora Mendoza representing Brazil. And um, I, I and Leland Reinhardt, my teammate. So there were, like I said, 13 of us. And so once we, once we formed the International Runners Committee with our 13 movers and shakers in the running world, we began the process of lobbying and going, attending our international federation meetings and our, our, the IOC meetings. And I should add that we did bring in a professional lobbyist from Washington, D.C. Oh. to teach us how. That was Jeff Darman's uh, idea, which was perfect because he knew uh, he knew how our national federation was formed and had to go, you know, was changed from AAU to TAC because of an act of Congress. So he knew all the inside infrastructure um, and all the ins and outs of what it took, and he knew what the IOC charter and the IAAF had to say about adding new events. Right. So he taught us what we needed to do. Wow. So we have telegram campaigns, we've got doors, we're sending doors to international meetings, we're doing everything we can from the inside out. And that goes on for years. Um, so by 19, that was 1979, we formed by 1981, a combination of things caused the women's marathon to go forward ahead of all the other events. Right. But I believe uh, a, lot of, a lot of events, the Avon series, we have to give credit where credit is due. The Avon series helped enormously. Uh, there was a, a time um, in Tokyo in 1979 where one of the IAAF members came out and sanctioned that marathon and said, well, this is a good thing. We should, we should move it forward to the Olympic program. We had, we had the endorsement then uh, of the IAAF. But in my heart, I, I really believe um, the fact that um, it could, it was a popular event, it could attract sponsors, it could attract television. Yes. I know that was a key factor and I'll tell you why. Because in the meeting that came to Los Angeles, and by the way, our inside track, our inside guy, um, on the USOC said they were, the vote for the women's marathon was going to come up at the Moscow meeting in 1980, right. except that we were striking, we were boycotting the event. And so anything that sounded like a Western, uh, a Western proposal would probably get vetoed as right. a backlash to the US's boycotting Moscow games. So they're not gonna vote for anything we propose. So he actually postponed he got the meeting tabled, or the vote tabled and moved to Los Angeles. In 1981, um, in early 1981, the, the next meetings of the IAAF and the IOC came to Los Angeles, because remember the Olympic games were coming to Los Angeles in 84. Nice. So I actually got an audience with the president of our IAAF, our International Federation and the secretary uh, Lu uh, Luciana Barra was the secretary and Nebbiolo was the um, president. And I got an audience with them uh, to say uh, that this is all wonderful that the women's marathon has been voted on to go into the Olympic games, but they, there's a serious oversight here by not adding the 5,000 and the 10,000. Right. right. Okay. So I was met with just surprise that um, they they were also they were ill-informed. Mm -hmm. They were um, patronizing me, um, like you know, oh little lady, you know, <laughs> you really need to realize that it's a long process to get an event accepted, and the first steps are that you have to have your distances recognized as world record events. And I'm thinking that's already done. done. And, and I whip out my track and field news with the rankings of the five and the 10 because they are world recognized events. And he goes, and they, oh, well, you know, oh, well, you know, like they didn't know that. And well, they have to be contested in countries around the world. We need more participation. And I'm going, well, I, I'm looking at all the different countries that these records are in as I'm showing them my magazine. How many countries is it? Like 35? You need, you need 25 countries 25. on three different continents. 
Right. And they should be holding uh, championships at this, at this distance. Right. Okay. So I don't know. I go away from that meeting and oh, the capper, the capper, um, I'm, I'm pointing out all these things that we've already met all of that criteria. And they looked me right in the eye and Nebbiolo said, he just shook his head. It doesn't matter. Those, your events are boring. They won't sell tickets at the gate. They'll, they're never going in. Oh my gosh. I am so deflated. I am angry. It, that, that was the red flag for me. Right. So after that meeting, at some point, I hear a report on um, my news radio station that the ACLU commissioned the Women's Sports Foundation to do a study about the number of events that the Olympics, which are coming to Los Angeles, how many have men, how many events do the men have and how many events do the women have? And it turns out to be, we had a third. Okay, so this was like a little better than back in 1928. But not much. <laughs> but not, by, not by much. And, and you and I know, you know, we've had some events taken back away from us and not given back to us for 12 years. And at this glacial movement of adding an event every three or four Olympiads is too long to wait. No, it's way and too long. And it's way too long to wait. And you and I know an, an athlete's entire career can be over with in one Olympiad or two Olympiads. I was going to say probably two or three live. At the most. Yeah, I mean, France, some people have made, you know, the record is making five Olympics. Right. But the, the average person, yeah. Anyway, it was just too much to wait, too much to ask for. So I hear the ACLU saying <laughs> that if anybody, you know, would like to contribute or participate or I could not call them fast enough. <laughs> we didn't have cell phones in those days. But I called Ramona Ripston, who was the executive director of the ACLU in Los Angeles. And I said, I don't know about the other sports, but let me tell you about mine. And she said, oh, well, actually, they thought that getting the marathon meant the women's distance, women's track and field was taken care of. She thought oh. that was complete. Ooh. And I said, oh, no, 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 no. We don't even want the 3,000. I said, but what we really need is a, a 5,000 and a 10,000. And I explained what just happened. So she's hearing discrimination. And mm -hmm. she assigned, uh, she, she got a, a lawyer named Susan McGreevy mm -hmm. who took on our case. So she, uh, she, she was a 1500 meter swimmer with, and yeah, no, I didn't realize they didn't get their event until recently. So um, she had, she was empathetic to our cause. Yeah, she understood. She understood. And she said, nobody ever told Frank Shorter to wait. <laughs> so uh, she took on our cause and then, you know, so that began it. Um, and we, we did a uh, letter well, I, I did a letter campaign, thank, thanks to Nike, who was funding the IRC, and they actually um, funded our press conference and at the first track and field world championships in 1983 in Helsinki. Uh, that was the day we announced our lawsuit. Because in those years of 81 and 82, we were lobbying, 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 and threatening lawsuit, but push came to shove and we declared a lawsuit. So we maximized our audience by being at the world championships. And um, I, was, I was there and um, my lawyer was in LA on one of those morning shows. I don't even remember which one, you know, like Good Morning America or something. Right, right, right. So um, she was live in LA and I was live in Helsinki and I'm not a household name. So I didn't, I chose two spokespersons who would get attention. Greta Weitz and Mary Decker. Mm -hmm. Mary had just won the 15 and the three and Greta had won, or Mary had just won the three and Greta won the marathon. Right. And yet I had both of them speaking to, at the press conference to why we needed the five and the 10. Why it was too much to ask a woman to now choose to either run the 3000 or the marathon. And what a bad idea that was. And all that distance in between, now you're, you're forcing women to run much shorter and faster than they are trained to do or want to do. Right, right. And, or to run much longer than they should be doing. Right. 
and a lot of women were left out right. uh, all around the world. Every country, you know, you're missing two events, three people each, or, you know, that's, that's a big chunk. So now the 3K in a lot of ways is a middle distance event. It, it's the same. Not a whole heck of a lot different than a 1500. Exactly the same. Exactly the same. So um, I, they, they made a good case. And then um, it was interesting that um, even backing up a little bit, we had some, we had pushback from the LA organizing committee about that marathon, even after, even before they got to Los Angeles to, to take the vote and announce it. I mean, by that point, it, it was a done deal, but I knew it was a done deal back in Moscow. Right. I, I knew it was, they just had to move the vote to LA. At that point in time, I had a letter from Peter Uberoth via his secretary, uh, the secretary, I think that was his title, Dick Sargent. Mm -hmm. um, I have a letter saying that, you know, no, no, nothing against women or nothing against runners, but we have no room for expansion in the, in the sport at this late date. We have to keep our numbers down. We don't want the marathon. Wow. Oh wow. Okay. So then the same guy who got the, uh, I'll, I'll just go ahead and say it was Bob Giegengack of Yale. He, he was on the USOC. So he also not only got that vote moved to Los Angeles, he also told Peter, you know, we, we, you know, we uh, need your enthusiastic support at, the, right. at this point. And by the time the uh, Olympic marathon was accepted for women that voted on, you'd have thought Peter invented the women's marathon. He was so for it. Well, you know, t I'm, I'm sure that the TV revenue had a lot to do with that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he, God bless him, he did raise the most, uh, you know, the most, in terms of finances, you know, the, the first marathon that actually uh, profited. So, and, and the money has been well spent since. I worked for 12 years for that LA 84 Foundation and they, those millions of dollars did a lot of good for sports, for youth in, in the state. So um, kudos to him for that, but you know, bad on him that he ever resisted it in the first place. Right. right. So we have the lawsuit going on for the five and the 10, but we do have a women's marathon. Personally, it was the most dramatic year of my entire life, bar none. Um, I'm working on the lawsuit. I'm going to court. You know, we moved from district to federal to appellate. Um, didn't have time to go to Supreme Court, or I, I'm sure we would have, but um, I, need to tr I need to run that women's first Olympic marathon trials. Yes. You that personally need to run it. Yes. I personally needed to be there. I needed my name, not only on the start list, I needed it on the finish list. Right. And yet, okay, so 1983, the lawsuit's on, November, I can't even get a qualifying time oh, for the marathon. I can't even finish it. I can't even finish a marathon. I have a hamstring problem. Right. And it turned out to be compartment syndrome. And I could go six miles, no problem. Anything longer, I couldn't finish. Right. It just quit. Um, it was like dragging a, a piano leg. <laughs> I mean, it just wouldn't work. And it's so, so important that you physically need to be there. It's it's yeah. It's the essence of all of this, really. Yeah, not in the not not in the grandstands. I, I needed I needed to be on the starting line. So I had surgery in nineteen in November, mm -hmm. and remember we had to qualify. The window for the window for qualifying was already open, and it was closing by April. Right. And so I had the surgery in November. Fortunately for me, surgery went great. Didn't require therapy, a lot of therapy, and so. I just had to wait for the 29 stitches on my nine in, 19 inch scar or whatever it was on the back of my leg um, to heal and I could go out and run. And so I ran my first marathon in January. It cramped, I backed off, I you know, slowed down and I missed by a lot, uh, but no damage was done. So I did another marathon in February. And this time I'm, I'm running with another desperate woman runner trying to get her time. And I let her go. I thought she was picking it up. No, I was slowing down. I missed by less than two minutes. Oh my gosh. Really frustrating. Again, no damage. So my coach and my doctor, you know, they're consulting and they're going under ordinary circumstances, we would say no. But 
you know, you're so, uh, well, Lazel always told me I was the most stubborn runner he ever had, but <laughs> I prefer determination. And they let me try a third time. And the only one left was Boston in April. Last, last sanctioned course, last day to qualify, Boston. I don't know if you were there that year, but it was a hailstorm. It was yes. cold. It was sort of like 2018. <laughs> um, it was like Desi's year. I think it, Desi's year knocked mine off the charts, but 84 was cold and wet. Right. Now I'm doing fine. I mean, I, I didn't, I really was dismayed at the beginning, but my roommate was from Florida. We're both sporting a tan from training in the sun. <laughs> and she said, hey, we got nothing to lose. We have to try. Right. And so um, we did, you know, and I was on pace. I was doing great. I'm just clicking them off. I've got two news crews following me around, by the way, because oh. I forget to mention, but the most important part was that my lawsuit went to court for the first time that day. Right. Oh, no pressure. Oh, no pressure. And two news crews are following me around. The Ted Koppel Nightline crew wanted the story of a former Boston Marathon winner returns 11 years later. Will she win? And I'm thinking, well, that's not going to happen. And then uh, the other crew was like, her lawsuit is the, the lawsuit uh, for the women's five and 10 is in the court today. And uh, they wanted me to give a statement at Wellesley at halfway mark. And I go, no. No, if I'm not going to stop. <laughs> no. I said, if you catch a picture, they just don't have the idea about running. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I said, if you catch a picture of me, fine, I am not stopping. And I'm not wearing this microphone either. So uh, I wore it through the warm up, and then I said, I need five, five minutes alone time. And then off I went. Um, I'm fine all the way to mile 20, 20. I'm, I'm checking my pace. I'm, I'm, I have to break 250, mm -hmm. but um, I'm doing okay. And I'm, it's, it's cold, it's windy, it's rainy. The hail felt like little arrows hitting your skin. Oh, yeah. Yeah. oh it, was, it was awful. But, you know, we all shared clothes. So I was wearing a hat and long sleeves and long tights. And yet at mile 25, I saw a sign I didn't know what to think about. Because, I mean, it's been a long time since I'd run Boston. Now they have actual mile markers. They used to tell you the time when you entered a new town and it meant nothing. Right. And uh, now I've actually got five mile marks or 5K marks and it's, it's all good. Mile 25, I saw a sign, that a digital clock that said I was in 10th place uh, for the women and on, on 244 pace. And I thought, how did they do that? I didn't even know you could do that. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking about how you can do that. And all of a sudden, I started getting tunnel vision. Oh. And I started feeling like I was fighting the sidewalk, like I was going to fall forward on my face any minute. Mm -hmm. And I was just trying to stay upright, like, what is happening to me? What is going on with me? And, and then I just start. I, I don't know if I cried or got angry or both. Um, I'm just like indignant. I think that's what saved me was that the anger took over. Yeah. Yep. Um, I deserve to finish this race. Right. Right. It is I important. need to finish this race. I deserve this. I deserve mm -hmm. this. And it became, it, it became a chant in my head. I deserve to finish this race. I deserve this. I deserve this. And I, I woke up on a hospital cot in, I think it was like a basement of uh, where we finished and um, wrapped up in a wool blanket and teeth chattering and dog tags around my neck. And there's this IV bottle hanging on the, on the cot overhead. And I'm, I'm looking around and there's a doctor who's looking at me and saying, hey, you know, young woman, your, your body temperature is below 93. Wow. And we're keeping you here for observation and, and some other stuff. And all I said was, did I finish? Oh, oh, oh. My watch was still no. running. My watch was still running. I hadn't even stopped my watch. I had just, with it. I, you I blacked out on the finish line. So the nurse, when he made a joke, which told me I'm not going to die. It was like, if he can make a joke, I'm not, I'm not dying. Um, he said, nurse, she may be dying here, but she needs to know her time. Could you go find out? And she did. And she came back with, meanwhile, he's asking me about my dry clothes. And I said, I didn't send a bag to the finish line. I, I was going to 
cross the finish line, jog over to the hotel, you know, be done. Be done. Go get in a hot shower. Um, so I don't have any dry clothes here. But um, and he let me wear that wool blanket back to the hotel. So I she came back and she gave me a high 247 time, like almost 248. Let's round up. And I remembered that 244 time prediction right. in 10th place. Well, I ended up in 14th place in 248. So I figure I lost four minutes and four places, in four places in one mile. And you and don't remember. I don't remember. Wow. I do have a, in a sort of a finish line picture while I was still upright. Right. And I do have that glassy eyed look, like I don't know where I am. <laughs> and anybody, I'm, I'm just shuffling. Not knowing about the marathon, you know, yeah. and, and most people listening will, will know about it. But, you know, first of all, running three marathons in three months or four months is. Yeah. Well, and is, then I had to run the trials. So four and four months. Four and four months is unheard of. I mean, it's, it's incredibly hard. It takes such a toll on your body. Not right. Not really bright. And then to go into what you went into, hypothermia, I'm assuming. Yeah. You know, is, you're lucky. I mean, very lucky. And I think it has more to do what, with what Laszlo said is you're stubborn. You I'm, knew in your core that you had to run under 250. That was right. Just under I had to run under 250. So I, I still got it, 248. Right. An amazing time. Uh, you know, I, 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 I oftentimes think that we don't, we hear about all these runners that are breaking, you know, almost two hours in the marathon yeah. or whatever, but people don't know what an effort it is to run under three hours and under 250. Is, and is at a, that point in my life, I'm 36 years old with a four-year-old child. I was going to say, and you had had a baby about three or four years earlier. Yeah. Um, and a serious injury. Uh, you know, remarkable. And I think just the power of what you so wanted to happen, needed to happen, was probably what got you through that. So I had to be stress. there. I, 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 you know, bar nothing. I mean, you could have told me I'd die the next day, but I had to be there. I had to be there, exactly. Well, it was funny too, because I went up to the marathon. I had helped a little bit with Brent James in the early stages of working. Okay, yeah. And I was very pregnant uh, during the actual trials. Um, oh, wow. And I had a picture of me I think I had my baby in August and you guys were May, May. Um, and I remember thinking to myself, gosh, I am one lazy woman. There had to be three or four <laughs> other pregnant women in the race itself. Maybe, but not that pregnant. That's, that's pretty late term. <laughs> that's a lot of extra weight. But, uh, you know, it, it, you know, it's remarkable sort of the parallel things that were happening in your life. And, yeah. um, you know, all I can say is, Jacqueline, if, if you hadn't have done what you had done, and I know there were many people who were part of getting the longer races into the marathon, but I think your determination um, and your stubbornness, as Laszlo would have said, yeah, yeah. really got you through. And, you know, we are forever grateful, forever grateful for you. Well, I, I really was just the point guard and I had a, I had a really good team around me. Gotcha. No, for sure. I mean, yeah. So what do you think is the next fight for women in Ooh. sports or women in running? I mean, it can be whatever. I just, what do you think's the next, the well, next fight for us? You know, I used, I used to think that, um, that we, we would have, we would arrive when we got equal media coverage, right. that right. we would get treated like athletes, not women. And right. the way, the way they word the articles about how she looked or what she wore or, you know, what, what she did off the court or off the track and that kind of thing where they wouldn't do that with men. So I always, I was, I'm still looking for equal media coverage, but you know, we're doing pretty, pretty, pretty good. Well, we made, pretty we well. made a lot of progress there. Something that um, you said earlier, I'm trying to remember um, triggers um, my thought, um, something about the AIAW and the NC2A. Right, co-opting, and in a sense, when when one organization, because of what for whatever reasons, I think the AIA, uh, excuse me, I think the AIAW was going bankrupt, actually, yeah. if I remember, and there were other things. I think people wanted, but they 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 gave up their power in a sense to the right, NCAA. like yeah, like Alice Milliot gave up the FSFI for the okay. Well, 
I, I, I really think that, didn't we have a lot more women coaches of women's teams in AIAW than we did NC2A? So I, in 1972, 90% of the women, or of the coaches of women's and girls' teams were women. And After, now? And now <laughs> it's something in the range of 30 to 40%. So, I mean, it, exactly. We need, so. we need to improve that. I, I can only name a handful of my colleagues that went into coaching, whether it's Francie LaRue or Doris Brown Heritage or, and then, you know, the high school coaches, I know more on that level, like you and like Carol McClatchy and, you know, other friends. Um, but on the college level, it's got to be a lot. I mean, it's not even, it's not that big on the high school level, but it's better. The college level, it's got to be really small. I never quite chose to pursue that route. People often say, well, you teach at a university, but you don't coach there. I've, I think I stuck to high school coaching. I don't know. I've, I've been coaching kids since 1987 when my son went into school. Right. So I, I started with elementary school. I started and went to middle school. I just sort of followed him and I, I got recruited yeah. to a high school. And then I launched off into my own career in, in high school. And I've taught, I've coached high school, I think for personal reasons, that's where I got my start, but also that's, I connect. I connect with high school kids. So I didn't necessarily want to go to the college ranks. I didn't like the uh, recruiting part. That's not me, I'm not a salesperson, but um, I just like coaching. I just love the coaching, face-to-face uh, -face coaching on the track, on the cross-country course. So I didn't choose it, but you know what? It wouldn't have been easy. It wouldn't have no. been easy. There, Men held all those jobs uh, that I knew of in any of the colleges in my state, um, you know, short of being, you know, short of wanting to move um, out of state. They, they were held by men long term in there till their retirement, nothing opening up soon. And the only way to maybe even get into line in line would be to volunteer first and be an, then be an assistant coach and then hope you move up. So it, it wasn't easy. No, no. It wasn't easy to find jobs. And nothing against men. I'm not saying that any woman coach would be better than any male coach over a women's team. I agree. But I'm not saying that. I'm just, I'm, I would advocate for a qualified woman, a woman who's actually qualified for the job, just beyond, you know, beyond her sex. Um, I just would like to see equal opportunity. We can promise equal outcomes, but I'd like to see equal opportunities. However, well, that so could funny. happen. I'm sorry, excuse me, but it's so well, funny. I was just saying, however, that could happen, yeah. Yeah, and, 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 and you know, the fact that Title IX came into being in 1972, and it was this huge, you know, explosion of sports for girls and young women. And then, but at the same time, it was a detriment to women coaches. So, yeah. you know, when there became prestige in a college and university setting where men were being paid, they had, you know, it was a prestigious job. Yeah. They took over. And I think part of the problem is most of the athletic directors at universities and colleges are men. And in, and in fact, they're men, white men of a certain age, mm -hmm. and they tend to hire people who look like them mm -hmm. and that they know in their old boys network. So. Right. Yeah. We just need more open-minded people and um, more opportunities. And I love that organizations um, like yours are doing coaching education because, well, now that I think of it, it's sort of like what Dixie said about girls are not more inclined to go out for sports unless they've been taught. Well, maybe women aren't more inclined to go out for athletic director jobs or head coaching jobs if they haven't been educated and trained. So I worked, I was coaching education director for many years at the LA 84 Foundation. You've, um, you're taking, you're responsible for this wonderful committee that is supporting and educating women coaches. And we just need more of that. We just, this is exactly what needs to be done. Anything is possible through education. Right, I agree, I agree. and. And I think just the idea that I think a lot of women are hesitant sometimes to get into coaching. I think as women, this is a real generalization. We're all perfectionists. And, you know, it's, it's oftentimes I think you have to just 
put yourself in that situation and, and go for it in a sense, learn, you know, take a volunteer coaching job at a high school, mm -hmm. apply for the assistant coaching job when you feel ready. And, and also all of the level one USA track and field, the level two, the coaching the clinics mm -hmm. for sure are, are very, very important. Um, but, and I, and I hope to see soon more women coaching professional athletes, professional women. There's yep. very few, at, at just a handful at this point. Right. Um, Amy Yoder Bagley, Shalane Flanagan, um, uh, Laura Caldwell coaches a, a, a post-collegiate professional team. There you go. Uh, they just need to be given those opportunities or, or being, I think, understanding that they could. Yes. Yeah, they, they have. For sure. Yeah. So. I, I totally agree. Yeah. Well, Jacqueline, this has been amazing. Um, you know, I, I, I think we talked already a little bit about your book. Hopefully in the next year, we'll see another book from you. Um, yeah. I mm -hmm. absolutely loved reading A Long Time Coming. Would recommend it to anybody, especially, I think especially to get the sense of what it was like and how hard you and so many other people had to fight to get the longer distance in the Olympics and also to understand the sort of sadness that comes with the fact that you didn't get that opportunity. Um, and I know you don't dwell on it. I don't think any of us do, but, 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 you know, I think it's really wonderful to understand what that feels like. Uh, I know for Doris too, she probably would have been a fantastic 5k runner. Oh, you know? absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there was a, a 5,000 meter Olympian named Dick Berkeley. And he, I never forget what he said. I don't, I can't imagine what it must be like to fight for every event. When I was born with a God-given right to run any event I want. Right. Right. And we always had the support of the men. So and powerful, you know, to, to, and it's all about opportunity again. It you is. Know, opening up those doors for people. Um, but, uh, you know, to have the strength and courage that you had to go forward and so many other women that I knew, you know, the Nina Cusicks, the, uh, the Sarah Mae Bermans. Mm -hmm. I have to say, seeing Sarah Mae the other day, she's a, a runner that started as an orienteer. And I think she was a national champion in orienteering. Yeah. Um, she I still competes at that. What's that? She still competes at that. Yeah. What an amazing woman. And I remember meeting her at Fresh Pond, uh -huh. uh, running around uh, Fresh Pond. And she didn't look at me as, some sort of rival or competitor, she had opened her arms and welcomed me in uh, to this sisterhood that we call distance running. Yeah, yep. So I'm not surprised. Well, I, I try to live my life with no regrets. That's that. negative energy. And um, I got to be in the first women's Olympic marathon trials. That was my Olympics. Yep. And I got to host Joni. And like I said, I got to hold that medal. And she said, thank you. So I feel very fortunate um, that I did get to see all of that in my lifetime. And, uh, and to have that be a reality is such a credit to you. Um, and uh, I, I hope that many people listen to this because I think it's a really spectacular history of, of where we were and where we've come to. Um, I especially hope that young girls, even though oftentimes I say I, I really am happy that young girls don't know, you know, that there were times when they didn't, they couldn't have done what they do now. <clears throat> but I hope they do listen to this and, right. and really appreciate who you are and what it, you have it's, done. It's a good thing. It's a good thing that they, I don't mean it in a negative way, they take it for granted. Um, no, but it's a good thing that they expect it. They expect the opportunity. And so I just remind them to Ne don't really take it for granted and don't be lazy and you know mm -hmm. it with your god-given talent go out there and do what you can do a lot of a lot of women before you you know fought really hard for that right so i i want them to appreciate their past and live in the moment and look to the future thank you so much jacqueline i love you to death you're thank you an amazing person and um I'm so happy that we got to have this conversation and maybe we'll have another one at some point about sure. the detailed history. <laughs> okay, okay, I look forward to it. I'm glad that we are lifelong friends ever since that finish line in 1975 in Central Park. 
fact that we've stayed in touch and that we are we are friends. Great. Thank you so much. And love you, uh, <laughs> love you too. Bye bye. Bye bye. See you later. Thanks, Jacqueline. Okay. For more interviews and videos, go to the womensrunningcoaches.org. Please become a member of the WRCC. It's free and you can help change the landscape of women in coaching. Original music by Hank Richardson, Lonesome Rock.